This is an ABC podcast. Good afternoon. The Trump administration is committed to protecting and promoting the God-given dignity and freedom of every human being. It is a massive source of embarrassment to the United Nations that some governments with egregious human rights records sit on the Human Rights Council. We have no doubt that there was once a noble vision for this council. But today we need to be honest. The Human Rights Council is a poor defender of human rights. America's recent decision to pull out of the UN Human Rights Council came as little surprise. By many estimates, the Council has had a chequered record and has long been the subject of criticism. But so too has the United States government over its human rights record, its treatment of detainees at Guantanamo Bay, its actions against Mexican immigrants, etc. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. In fact, many Western countries, including Australia, have been accused in recent years of violating or ignoring human rights. Then there's the impact of technology, and in particular, artificial intelligence. So where is the ideal of human rights heading in a fast-moving political and technological age? That's our focus today. Alison Brisk is a professor of global governance at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's the author of the book, The Future of Human Rights. Professor Brisk believes over time, our understanding of human rights has become too narrow and too legalistic. Well, the, I would say political and academic critique is kind of too much, too little, wrong kind. And I think the wrong kinds, this claim that human rights are Western or that they're imposed by a certain set of societies, it's a way to discount and disparage the local activists by associating them with outsiders. It's, it's usually a claim of nationalist elites. Now, the too much and the too little. The too much is often the claim that human rights impinge upon sovereignty. And we think of that as also a nationalist kind of elitist claim. But there has been a displacement of citizenship power as a result of globalization. And the too little claim is that there is not enough leverage in certainly narrowly defined legal civil rights against the vast forces of globalization that are disempowering people and changing their lives. So I think that at an intellectual level, we have to understand that human rights do derive originally from liberalism from this philosophy of open markets, open states, and open societies, and the belief that those will liberate us from traditional forces, you know, church, state, crown, etc. And the era of liberalism itself is in crisis. So we need, again, to think more broadly, more creatively about whether it's the principles of rights and the principles, by the way, of cosmopolitanism, of connection, whether we can come up with a more responsive, grounded, and cosmopolitanism that that can deliver better on the promises of liberalism. I don't think it's human rights that aren't working. I think it's the liberal vision and the institutions that were founded too narrowly in association with those. 
And she says that while human rights are often talked about in relation to developing countries and Indigenous communities, many citizens in Western democracies don't fully value the idea of human rights because they don't feel they're relevant to them. There are reasons for that. In some cases, some form of welfare state, strongest in Europe, perhaps mid-range in Australia and a rather light welfare state in the U.S., that in some cases was a kind of explicit substitute for talking about social rights. And uh, certainly, for example, the um, barriers to talking about things like health rights in the United States were this sort of Cold War strategy to avoid delivering on the indivisible kind of human well-being that underpin a society. And I think that uh, there was also a kind of confusion between democracy and human rights. So democracy is necessary but not sufficient for human rights. Democracy is a set of political institutions and mechanisms. And human rights are a set of principles of respect and fulfillment and protection for a range of freedoms and conditions and capacities. And, you know, democracy can only provide, if you're lucky, a kind of access to civic self-determination. That's all democracy's supposed to do and able to do. And one of the reasons we have constitutional democracies, uh, checks and balances, is we need judicial systems just to protect freedoms. And then we need mobilization and we need other public policies to provide rights. There's the beginning of a discussion now about rights-based public policy. And I think that's very important to get us beyond the kind of collapse of the welfare state. There's also, if I may, strategy of uh, rights deflation by nationalist elites, regressions, across many of the developed democracies. And some of the rising states like Turkey, India, Israel, where rights become a competitive, exclusionary notion, you know, my rights come at the expense of yours. So, you know, again, if we dig a little deeper, we see what rights are for, and we see that we need them now more than ever. Samuel Moyne also ties the recent fate of human rights to the crisis of liberal democracy. Professor Moyne is based at Yale. There have been despotisms. There are many today, and we've always had a hard time both figuring out what to do about them and getting rights for people abroad, and that remains a huge challenge. What I think is distinctive right now is that there are a lot of places that seem to be moving from one category to the other. So places we thought were liberal democracies seem to be sliding into despotism. You know, the classic example would be Eastern Europe, which was the place where there were the first dissidents who made human rights famous in the 70s. But then those dissidents got to set up liberal democracy after 1989. And in those places, liberal democracy is failing or has already failed. And this is the so-called populist wave. And a lot of people are rightly concerned right now about that. But 
it doesn't mean that you know everything's in crisis. It just means that this one category of places that we thought we'd already established liberal democracy and it's turned out to be weak or in danger is a big problem for a lot of people right now. Is there an issue with confusion over what we mean by human rights? I mean, we hear people talking about technology companies and issues of privacy as a human rights issue. Are we unclear in Western democracies about what human rights actually are, what constitutes them? Absolutely. So the biggest confusion, I think, is that these rights have existed for a long time, but primarily were a way of thinking with our fellow citizens about what protections we wanted to give one another, including, you know, in welfare states, do we care about economic basic provision? The economic and social rights are on some of the lists of rights we have. And then there's this other project, which is related because it's called a human rights movement, but it's really much more about the fate of other people abroad, non-citizens, including migrants in an Australian case, who we might say have some basic entitlements, even though they're not our fellow citizens or not yet. And I would say it's really important to keep those two situations kind of separate in our minds. And then there's another kind of confusion, I think, which is that the list of rights changes over history, and we mean different things depending on the way the world is. The right to privacy is a classic example. This is not a, a right that is going to mean the same thing in a digital age. And after the revelations of Edward Snowden, when it turned out that my government, the United States government, was snooping on essentially the world, there occurred a debate about whether the right to privacy always meant that individuals had some protection from foreign governments or whether they ought to have one in the future. And the truth is, no one knows the answer to those questions. It's up to us to decide what the answer is. So it is fair or it is right that, you know, a a right like the right to privacy should be renegotiated when circumstances within a country or within a society change. Well, it's going to be, it's going to be renegotiated. These rights are just tools that we use to say we care about certain values in the abstract. But then when the situation we're in changes, we have to decide what that abstraction means given the detail of our lives. So on a kind of radical view of the right to privacy, it would prohibit spying. But no one has thought that spying was illegal. What changed was that it once was very difficult to spy on foreigners, and then it became very easy. And suddenly, you had so-called bulk collection, which is governments like mine just collecting everything there was to collect because now they could do it. That's unprecedented. And so there was a debate. There's an ongoing debate about what the right to privacy should mean in this new situation. Samuel Moyne from Yale University. So even rights that once seemed immutable can change over time given changing circumstances or at least need to be reinvestigated, renegotiated or rethought. This is Future Tense on RN, on Radio Australia, across Canada via CBC Radio and in Ireland courtesy of RTE Radio 1 Extra. I'm Anthony Fennell. 
And let's now stay with technology and the impact that new systems and applications are having on our understanding of human rights. The technology that I'm interested in is often referred to as emerging technology. And I'm looking in particular at technology that is referred to as autonomous and intelligent, autonomous and intelligent systems. Birgit Schippers is a lecturer in politics and a visiting research fellow at Queen's University, Belfast. So what interests me is technology that is capable of autonomous decision-making, technology that is capable of independent reasoning. And I'm looking at specifically military applications and applications in the area of surveillance and how this type of technology then impacts on our human rights. So this is the kind of technology that I'm fascinated by because in my view it has significant implications for human rights and it poses particular risks to human rights both in the present but also in the future. So just take us through those risks. What are the risks as you see them? Well, I think there are three particular types of risks. First of all, because of the capability of this technology, there is a huge potential for abuse. I'm also very worried about the growing pervasiveness of this type of technology. And that brings with it cultural shifts that make it more acceptable to circumvent existing human rights protection. And my last concern relates to, well, the unpredictability and inaccuracy of this technology. So we we tend to think of emerging technologies as particularly precise, as particularly accurate, and they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have these qualities. And uh, I think when they're applied, especially in military contexts, especially especially in very sensitive areas that go right to the heart of our human rights, I think that's worrying. Let me give you the example of the right to life, which we often consider as the most fundamental human right. So in relation to the usage of emerging technologies, there is a particular risk by increasing delegation of decision-making to machines. And I'm talking here about systems that we sometimes refer to as killer robots. So we are affected by increasing autonomy in weapon systems. And this means, for example, that target detection, target selection, the tracking of suspects is delegated to machines rather than to humans. Now, this is particularly worrying when it comes to kill decisions, when it comes to decisions whether weapons should be deployed or not. So, effectively, what we're doing is we're delegating the decision over life and death to a machine. That is worrying for a number of reasons. First of all, the machine can get it wrong. And very often, these decisions by machines are based on face recognition technology that is not particularly accurate. But there's another concern, and that is that, well, machines are not capable of distinguishing between civilians and combatants, which is a key principle in international humanitarian law. And that brings with it a third concern. 
if a machine gets it wrong, we are not sure who will be held to account, uh, and that affects the right to remedy. So it also demonstrates how different human rights are interlinked or interdependent. When decisions over the right to life is delegated to a machine, it can also affect the right to remedy. Who will be held to account? Well, we can't hold a robot to account. Who will be held liable? It is very, very unclear. So we're in, in un- uncharted territory. Similar concerns are held by the Australian Human Rights Commission. Commissioner Edward Santo recently launched a project examining the impact of digital technologies. Its aim is to develop recommendations for how human rights can be prioritised in both the design and regulation of future technology. The term we're using at the Human Rights Commission is responsible innovation. We see the benefits of improving our economy and all all other facets of, of life by embracing new technology, but it needs to be kept within bounds. We need to make sure that this technology that is, that is really reshaping our world does so in a way that protects people's fundamental basic dignity. But why is this a human rights issue? Why isn't this a, a government regulation issue? Well, it's both. So if you take an example, um, in the United States, AI is starting to be used in determining who gets bail if, if you're charged with a, an offence, and also in sentencing for criminal offences. And the main program, the, the Compass program that is being used in the US, has been shown to have a disproportionate negative effect on African Americans. In fact, if you're African American, you're twice as likely to get a really heavy sentence than if you're Caucasian. And that is a huge problem. We should be really worried about that because that fundamentally eats away at the equality which is central to our human rights and also central to our understanding of of what modern Australia is all about. And so we really need to identify where those problems lie and address them head on. And you're not just talking about companies here then, I imagine. You're talking also about the way in which artificial intelligence and technology is, is being used by governments and government bodies. Absolutely. In New South Wales, the police uh, have a program called the Suspect Target Management Plan. Essentially what that does is it identifies young people who the New South Wales police see to be at risk of committing crimes and targets them with, with extra attention. So they may be checked fairly frequently throughout their lives and on on what they're up to. That program, if you go on that list, relies on an algorithm. And at the end of last year, it became clear that over 50% of people on that list were Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, notwithstanding the fact that in New South Wales, less than 3% of the population is Indigenous. So when you look at those sorts of statistics, you can see something is going wrong and we need to understand why. And this calls to mind a recent program we had on Future Tense looking at artificial intelligence and the fact that, uh, you know, the biases that we have as humans, those biases, if they exist within the developer of technology, can actually influence the, the nature of the technology. So that's something you're looking at here, isn't it? In fact, there are three problems. The first is the one that you've identified, where the developer of an algorithm themselves has, has some kind of bias and it is translated into the algorithm. The second problem is where the underlying data set is itself problematic. And in the example from the United States, the Compass program, it's highly likely that African-Americans were disproportionately negatively affected because African-Americans have historically 
experienced discrimination in the criminal justice system. They're much more likely to have been convicted of crimes associated with poverty. They've been much more likely to have been convicted by all white juries that don't necessarily offer them the same level of sympathy and, and compassion. So those sorts of problems then get translated into the data set and then in turn the AI or machine learning tool picks those up. And then the third problem, and this is really a new problem, it is how do we as human decision makers interact with the computers that are advising us? And if we are either uh, too deferential or unwilling to, to, to listen to reason, then we're more likely to have a problem. Have we been too deferential? I mean, have we been too optimistic about technology and the way it can influence human society? I think when you when you speak to decision makers, so for example, if you speak to judges who receive this sort of information in their court, if they're told, look, the computer has assessed this individual as being a huge risk to the community. And unless you lock them up, or unless you, you grant this warrant, it'll be on your head if um, that individual commits a terrible crime. It's really difficult for that judge to withstand that sort of pressure. They would naturally be inclined to go along with what, whatever's being asked of them, even if they don't fully or even partly understand the basis on which the computer is making that recommendation. So that deferential problem is definitely there. What we need to do is become more sophisticated. We need to understand where that sort of AI-assisted technology is going to be really useful for us because it'll provide us with accurate information and where we need to kick the tyres a little bit more vigorously to determine if there's actually a problem there. I think we are becoming more aware of the potentially negative usages of this technology. But for my taste, a lot more could be done. We all have a responsibility, especially those of us working in the field of human rights, obviously political parties, governments, but also the media, I think all have a responsibility to, to educate, to inform, to discuss these issues. And obviously, given the direction of travel in terms of technological development, this is an issue that is not going away. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed, how we as individuals engage with technology and how we become more aware of the way that we protect our own privacy, not just as an onus on governments to ensure that privacy protections and the right to privacy remains will be upheld, but also how individuals engage with technology and adapt their behaviour in such a way that they do not become unknowingly complicit in surveillance practices that maybe those who are less well disposed towards us seek to exploit. So I think constant attention to this topic is clearly warranted and a, a constant attention especially to how, how they shift cultural expectations, how they shift the wider culture of human rights that exists in individual countries and also globally. I don't think we should become complacent when it comes to this type of technology. Birgit Shippers from Queen's University, Belfast. So, we've heard about threats, but what about the potential of technology to benefit human rights? Alyssa Satara is a human rights advocate based in the US. 
The reason I actually gravitated towards the tech sector and uh, the social innovation sphere of the tech sector is because I was a humanitarian working in NGOs and nonprofits. And even though they had great intentions and were doing great work as a millennial where I'm very tech involved, naturally, I kept seeing processes being so slow and me not understanding why the systems were functioning like that. So I think that a lot of people who advocate and work to protect human rights, I, I think that there is still a place for them in the world and there's still a need for that in the world. But I also think that there are much more efficient ways to do that. It's hard when you're in the trenches of human rights, working so closely with one sector. I like to look at human rights as just like a global scale and we're all intertwined. And if you look at it just through the lens of human rights, you don't get to see how everything is all connected. For example, there's modern day slavery that happens with the way that fish are caught from people who are in forced labor and they're sold to Costco or, or a big name brand in a Western country. And if we were able to penetrate the system that allows fish like this, for example, to be sold on a bigger market, then that would eventually help us reduce slavery and force labor in the world. And it doesn't actually have to be like grassroots from that. It, it, it would be a lot more effective if it started from the top and started with those big name brands that sell blood diamonds or that put products out like that. And that means using social media, for example, to pressure or shame companies and governments into doing the right thing. Alyssa Satara sees particular potential in the use of blockchain technology. The reason blockchain in any kind of way you look at it as it pertains to human rights, why it's so beneficial is because it allows you to create work on this platform that is very transparent and very non-corruptible. And when it comes to human rights, the reason that human rights are violated so frequently is a lack of transparency and or corruption. And that applies as much to voter fraud as it does anything else. With voter fraud, using blockchain ledgers and systems, because things are tracked through the blockchain and it isn't something you can go in and it's not a number that you can go in and change, it's not a system that you can corrupt. If we were to implement voting systems on the blockchain, it would be incorruptible and impenetrable for someone who, who wanted to create voter fraud, which we've been dealing with in the U.S. recently, but that's something that happens all around the world and compromises democracy and government. So if I put my vote in and it was on a blockchain ledger, no one could go in and take my vote out or switch my vote or duplicate my vote or anything that is voter fraud. It's a secure system that outside forces can't penetrate and it's neutral and it's not owned by anyone, so there's not any fear of corruption. Blockchains are incredibly popular nowadays. But what is a blockchain? How do they work? What problems do they solve? And how can they be used? Last year, the UN World Food Programme used blockchain to send cryptocurrency-based vouchers to around 10,000 Syrian refugees in Jordan. It was a test case to see whether digital payments are safer and more efficient. And I love that as an example because not only does it give funds to refugees and in the future maybe it could put donations directly into the hand of refugees instead of going through NGOs, 
It also bypasses bureaucracy, which is a good intention in the nonprofit world, but can hinder productivity for actually getting stuff done. And of course, throughout the years, a lot of people have started becoming a little bit skeptical with nonprofits and where all the money is being allocated. And blockchain technology allows, if you have a smartphone, you, you can get it, whether it's a refugee or someone in a developing nation that might not have access to a bank. This technology allows me to send money to you with no central median in the middle because it's a decentralized system. And I'm, I'm not saying blockchain is the one solution that's going to fix it. But blockchain really helped refugees be a part of the conversation and be able to contribute something on their own terms. Human rights advocate Alyssa Satara. That's Future Tense for another week. Next week, we need to talk about Zook. Mark Zuckerberg is an idealist and he saw digital technology from early on as having the potential to connect people in such a consistent and friction-free way that they might actually treat each other better. And that ideology, that naive ideology, remains at the core of Mark Zuckerberg's worldview. But along the way, he and his company made a series of choices that ended up with the Facebook we know now. Perspectives on Facebook. That's next week on Future Tense. Karen Savanovitz is my co-producer. Our sound engineer was Dave White. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.